It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. John Favreau was out of the office this week, but we are very excited to have Melissa Murray, the co-host of the amazing Strict Scrutiny podcast, joining me today. Melissa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you because today we're going to talk about quote unquote law things, and it's very important to have a quote unquote law person <laughs> here to talk about it. So this is great. Law-ish. Law-ish. <laughs> yes, law-adjacent yes. things, uh, which yes. is still a, a zone that John and I should never enter on our own. So thank you for shepherding me through this. Well, I just want to put out there that John Lovett did get a really good score on the LSAT, so he could technically step in at any time here. Well, I would like to point out that I took not one, not two, but three common law classes when I was in college. So I feel like I'm at least on the I'm on the outside looking in, but I'm kind of in the zone. I mean, you could be on the Supreme Court with that background. I like, <laughs> Don't count yourself out. Technically and constitutionally, I could be. Okay. On today's show, Donald Trump kind of, sort of mounts a defense in the rapidly moving criminal investigation into his habit of illegally storing highly classified documents at his beach house. President Joe Biden makes a huge and long-awaited decision to cancel up to $20,000 of student debt. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre will come on to tell us all about it. And finally, Arizona Secretary of State Kitty Hobbs will join me to talk about her campaign for governor against the most MAGA of MAGA candidates. But first, as everyone here knows, because we tell you all the time, we are huge fans of Karyuma Shoes, but we are excited to announce that Crooked and Karyuma have now collaborated on two new awesome pairs of shoes that the listeners of Pod Save America will love. You can order your pairs today in the Crooked store, and as always... A portion of the proceeds from these shoes and any item you buy in our store goes to Vote Riders, the leading organization focused on fighting voter ID. One design features an I Voted sticker print all over the shoe, and another one is a sleek white pair that says no steps back on the side. Get it? It's a walking metaphor. <laughs> Anywho, check them out at crooked.com slash kicks. Also, with Election Day less than 100 days away and early voting starting even earlier, Earlier in many states, election officials will be deciding in the next few weeks how many early voting and election day polling locations they can open, which means we need people signing up to be poll workers right now. We are working with Power to the Polls to recruit as many poll workers as possible. Sign up at powerthepolls.org slash crookedmedia. That was exhausting. I honestly don't know how John does it every week, twice a week. All right, let's get to the news. We are learning more and more about Mar-a-Lago and what exactly was in Trump's possession. According to a May 10th letter to Trump lawyers from the National Archives, Trump tried to delay the FBI's review of the records he turned over in January. There were 700 pages of classified documents in his possession, and some of them contained what a source told the Washington Post were, quote, the most sensitive secrets we hold. <laughs> All right, Melissa. First, I just got to ask, 
who among us hasn't misplaced 700 classified documents? I mean, Dan, who among us hasn't taken the nuclear football home because you had to do some work later that <laughs> night? I mean, yes. this is an easy mistake to make. I mean, 700. Yes. I mean, you go home, you're watching Jeanine Pirro. You might have to launch a tactical nuclear strike. So you have to have you it. Gotta br- you got to have it with you. Yeah. I mean, it's a work from home. WFH. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. right. Not WTF. WFH. Yes. Um, In terms of a potential criminal prosecution, as we look at this letter, um, help us understand what's more significant, the amount of documents, the types of secrets held in the document, or the fact that it appears that Trump lawyers lied about having the documents to begin with? Maybe none of that, right? So one of the twist, one of the things things I thought was really revealing about this letter. And and again, the idea that the Trump people wanted this letter out in public is utterly baffling to me because I think it's incredibly damning for the former president. But one of the things the letter documents and makes quite clear is that there was this constant back and forth with the former administration about the return of the documents, whether the documents, in fact, were privileged, who held the privilege. And the picture that you get coming out of this is that there's almost a willful and intentional effort to keep the documents out of the hands of the National Archives, to not return them. And if you think about some of the statutory predicates that were identified in that search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, among them is the Espionage Act. And one of the elements of the Espionage Act is willfully refusing to turn over documents that are sensitive to the national security. And, you know, just a lot of what you see documented in this letter seems to be about willful, intentional, purposeful retention of sensitive items. We've been debating back and forth on this show for the last two weeks about why Trump might have wanted these documents. He is not someone who is known to care about policy. He famously did not read his briefings, classified or otherwise. There was even some anecdotes in some of these books that he preferred pictures and <laughs> over words in his documents. But I mean, do you have who a theory? doesn't? Do you have- who doesn't, Dan? <laughs> that's, that's right. In today's meme economy, there would be a much be easy, a much more efficient way to get presidents briefed up on very very sensitive. Why can't things. the Constitution just be gifts, Dan? Really? <laughs> that's right. Do you do you have a theory? I mean about why he might have wanted these, um, anything you have gotten from any of the various statements or documents that suggest why he, because f- he very clear, this was not an accident. He clearly fought hard to keep these, as you pointed out, but do you have any thoughts on why that might be? So, you know, why release the letter? I, I can only imagine that the release of the letter is part of this sort of grievance-style politics where he has imagined himself the victim of a dark Brandon slash Biden led <laughs> campaign to bring him down, even though he's not doing anything but hanging out with 700 pages of classified documents at his beach club. Um, that's the only reason I can think of for releasing this. Um, why have the documents? Like that, I think, is a different question. And I can't help but read that happening without sort of reflecting back on the first Trump impeachment where the whole question, I mean, like this is like now we're really reaching into the vault. Mm. Um, The first Trump impeachment was all about whether or not the president had withheld 
aid to the Ukraine in exchange for the president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, providing him with damning information about who he then identified as his political rival, Joe Biden and anyone in Joe Biden's family. Um, I think we saw in that impeachment, that first impeachment, someone who it was alleged would go to any lengths to best a political opponent, including using whatever resources of the United States were at his disposal. And, you know, when I think about these 700 pages of classified documents, that's what I think about. Like, were they there because he viewed them as being at his disposal for leveraging and and perhaps obtaining an advantage and and something else that we don't even know about? Um, So, you know, there's no good reason for someone to have 700 pages of classified documents in what is likely a very humid basement in Mar-a-Lago. I grew up in Florida. I guarantee you it's an incredibly humid basement. But again, I I think you can't think about it without sort of reflecting back on some of the different episodes in this man's tenure as president where, you know, we just saw a lot of unorthodox use of American resources and alleged unorthodox uses of American resources. The the other reason that I think Trump may have quite stupidly released this letter is, and I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm going to say because it makes me really question a lot of my life decisions, but John Solomon, who is a noted conspiracy theorist crank who wrote a lot of the fan fiction about Trump in, in Ukraine during the first impeachment, uh, went on Steve Bannon's podcast to talk about the letter. And John Solomon, in addition to being someone who was fired from the Hill for lying, which is basically impossible. The Hill is a place you can't get fired from. Like It's like getting uh, – it's just like hard to imagine uh, that ever happening to someone. He is – Solomon is also Donald Trump's hand-picked representative to the National Archives. Like he is the person who was supposed to communicate with the National Archives about – Various documents like President Obama, as you know, when he was writing his memoir, was constantly getting papers from the National Archives to look at. And there was this very specific process with lawyers and, you know, and high level staff members who were communicating and they were being returned and all that. And Trump is this complete nut job doing it. But so John, so- John Solomon went on uh, C-BAN's podcast. And just the way we know that, that Trump released this letter is it was released on John Solomon's website. Uh, which I'm sure is like very normal, uh, very normal. Super, it's a super, super normal. That's a traditional legal way of getting information out is on a website that's probably banned in a lot of places. Uh, but in it, John Solomon argued that the letter proved that Joe Biden masterminded, signed off on, was somehow involved in the raid at Mar-a-Lago. And just so we can dispense with that. The and you may have more to add here, but the specific mention of President Biden in the letter has to do with the claims, the completely ridiculous claims of executive privilege that former President Trump was trying to make over these documents. Presidents are the ones who make decisions about executive privilege, just as it was President Biden who made decisions about what documents would be released to the January 6th committee and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. It has nothing to do with the raid. You need like a like several spools of red string to get to where they're going. But it was part of this effort to try to blame Biden, as you said, to make himself the victim of some conspiracy. Well, so so let me just like make one amendment to what you said, and I agree with all of that. This is part of the victimization uh, narrative that is being spun. It was not a raid of Mar-a-Lago, right? I think that's important to underscore. There was a validly 
obtained and executed search warrant. Like someone had to go to a judge and provide probable cause for the search. And that was all provided. And it was all on the up and up. And so to say that it was a raid, I think, does play into this narrative that he is somehow a victim who has been wronged, which I, I don't think is the case. But again, I do think this is part of this narrative where he has been besieged and beleaguered and Joe Biden is a puppet master orchestrating everything. And there, the other part of this, and this sort of goes with everything that Trump has done, right? It's the everything he said, like they planted the evidence. They planted the evidence, but the evidence they planted was to- was not actually a crime because I had this mysterious magical standing order to declassify everything, I, which I declassified no one, this, it before it was planted, which was, which was the most precious thing I've ever done because I'm a genius. <laughs> yes, yeah, and mm-hmm. all of those things is all part of the. It's like the embodiment of the Trumpian right-wing media strategy that Steve Bannon once called flood the zone with shit, which is you just throw everything you possibly can, even if it is ridiculous, contradictory, absurd, at the wall, distract the media, distract Democrats, hope that less engaged uh, voters just throw up their arms and say, who the fuck knows what to believe, and to also give as many very thin reads to all the people who are predisposed to stick with Trump, to give them a reason to stick with Trump, to hang on to, to stick with Trump. And that, like, it doesn't matter how ridiculous, that's that's what it, that's like, that's sort of what they're doing. The problem they face is, and this is where I really want to get your take, is when that has worked quite successfully in the past, including in both impeachments, it is because it was happening in the realm of politics. Mm-hmm. where the audience was voters in a deeply polarized country powered by right-wing propaganda or Congress and the Senate where you had politicians who had political incentives to behave certain ways. Where I think Trump is struggling here is this is not a case that is necessarily going to take place in the realm of politics. He's not trying to persuade Susan Collins to stick with her party or Lisa Murkowski to stick with her party or give some talking points to Lindsey Graham. This is going to happen in the court of law. And so in that context, you know, there's been this running debate among people on Twitter, which is obviously very important, about whether (laughs) the Department of Justice simply executed this uh, legally authorized court approved search warrant that was done in a very peaceful fashion, not a raid, uh, because they needed to get these documents back, which seemed to be quite sensitive, or because it's part of an actual effort to seek evidence for a potential criminal case against them. Is there anything you've learned over the last couple of weeks that gives you a clue as to which direction you think this is going? So I, I love the distinction that you draw between law and politics. Um, I also love the idea of just you know flinging shit at the wall, because it reminds me of um, going to the Oakland Zoo, which has this chimpanzee enclosure. And basically these chimpanzees literally just fling fecal matter at each other all day. So I just like had this image of Steve Bannon like in an enclosure just flinging fecal well, matter. Well, I, I would say I am a – my family is a member of the Oakland Zoo. So we ca- we are very frequent uh, viewers of uh, said uh, – it's very popular in my family, uh, the chimpanzee oh. enclosure. Well, yes. I, well, you know, I, I I lived in Oakland for a long time. I spent yes. a lot of time at the Oakland Zoo, so I, I have seen all of this, um, <laughs> the chimpanzee media strategy up close. Um, but 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 I think you're right. Um, this will play out differently because it's not being 
reviewed in the court of public opinion, but instead in a court of law. And I think you're seeing some of the limitations of that strategy already. So, you know, for example, we know that on Monday, the former president filed a complaint in the Southern District of Florida uh, before Judge Eileen Cannon, who is a Trump appointee, uh, to basically have a special master review the boxes and, you know, make his own determination about what could be returned to the president, but also to have some of these documents returned to the former president because they are, quote unquote, his. Um, And Judge Cannon, who is a Trump appointee, kind of wrote back in this sort of, you know, letter order, um, or or actually it wasn't a letter. She wrote back, she sort of clapped back in this order to the litigants that they had to basically rewrite their filing in a way that was actually legible to the court. I mean, it's basically judicial equivalent of what even is this? Like WTF, like you wrote a complaint asking for relief. You didn't specify the kind of relief you wanted. You didn't specify a theory of law that you could predicate your case on. You didn't identify any evidence that made you entitled to this kind of relief. Like It's just seriously WTF. What even is this? And Again, if you read that complaint, it is basically a 20-page rant that's intended to be a press release, talking about the Biden witch hunt, talking about all these things, or like he's a victim. It's not a legal filing. And she kind of said, this is not a legal filing. If you're going to do this in a court of law, you actually have to do law. And so that, to me, is one of the, the chief distinctions. They're not going to be able to get away with the kind of shit-flinging media strategy that I think works in politics in a court of law, even before someone who is on the bench because Donald Trump appointed them. Like, so, I mean, there might even be limits to what he has done as president to shape the judiciary in the way these kinds of filings will be received by the court. So, you know, that I think is the most important distinction here. And I think we're going to see that play out. One of the funniest parts about that is, and I'm getting this from a New York Times article from the other day, which is in that Tuesday hearing, the judge told Trump's attorneys, who according to the New York Times, neither of them were licensed to practice in the state of Florida. Yeah, there was a whole thing about whether they had done the proper requirements for pro hoc vice, which is how you get to practice in the Southern District of Florida. Yeah. And according to the judge said, quote, a sample motion can be found on the court's website since they had filled out all the paperwork wrong. It's just so... (laughs) It's like you just, I'm assuming you never want to hear that as an attorney sitting before a judge. <laughs> Download the sample motion from the website. Well, I mean, it's also I think it says a lot about the kind of legal counsel that's available to him right now. And and that I think is a real question. You know, during the first impeachment and even in the second impeachment, he had access to lawyers who were, I think, you know, very good lawyers. I mean, say what you want about Pat Cipollone. He is a good lawyer, right? Same for Pat Philbin. Like, they 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 know how to do this, even if, you know, they're doing it on behalf of someone who might be a sociopath and potential autocrat in, in the making. Uh, but this filing is not something I would ever want to see one of my students file in court. I mean, it's just so <laughs> devoid of any substance or any of just the traditional markers of an actual legal filing that it would make you wonder, like, is this the extent of your professional acumen? Who trained you? Like, this is bad. 
John and I talked about this last week, but there's been a lot of reports that Trump is really struggling to find quality attorneys to represent him, which is unusual in the sense that politically connected, rich, even obviously guilty politically connected and rich, particularly white men, never have trouble finding attorneys. Do you have any theories as to why he can't get some like person who understands how to fill out a motion to represent him. Like someone who understands how to wave into a district where they're not actually licensed to practice. Yes. Yes. So, so really complicated, high level constitutional interpretation like that. So I think one thing is, you know, we've famously heard that he doesn't pay his lawyers. Michael Cohen talked about getting stiffed on the bill uh, by Donald Trump. That surely has to be part of it. But I also think at this point in time, there are real reputational costs to representing the former president. Um, You know, and I'm not saying that that is necessarily a good thing. I, I truly believe in the Sixth Amendment. Anyone who is facing criminal liability deserves vigorous counsel. And, and I believe that for everybody, because I, I don't think that's a constitutional commitment you can be itinerant about. But I do think that given the adjacency to the insurrection, everything that has happened, the two impeachments, I, I think there are reputational costs to any lawyer who steps up to represent Donald Trump. And, you know, I think those reputational costs are real and people are weighing them. But I also think there has to be some consideration that, you know, this is a client who is unlikely to listen to you, a client who thinks that he knows best. And in pushing for his preferred outcome, this is a client who may likely lead you into some ethical thickets that may compromise your ability to practice law in the future, may even compromise your ability to live freely because he could get you into trouble in terms of your own criminal liability. I mean, there's, you know, with that um, National Archives letter, the whole discussion of the lawyer signing off on the document saying, okay, this is it, we've given you everything, and perhaps knowing that, in fact, that is not true, that's a real problem. That's an exposure to criminal liability. And I imagine there are a lot of people who are like, you know what? There are plenty of people to represent. I don't have to do this. Yeah, I think that you hit right at it, which is Donald Trump is like a super spreader of criminality, right? He, You come near him, you're, you work for him, your odds of needing an attorney, of being indicted, MAGA, of being interviewed. Making yeah, attorneys is. get attorneys. <laughs> That's what it stands for. I have said this over and over again. They are all, like all of his attorneys, White House counsel, private attorneys, we're all seeing their video, deposition videos in the January 6th hearing. It like, and you know, it's very, very specifically, you don't know if he is telling you the truth and you are put in a position of signing an affidavit based on false information. I mean, this person also, a lot of people who work around Trump, even if they are members of the bar, also lie on his behalf all the time. So maybe this person knew they were lying. But either way, if you're, I imagine if you're an attorney or someone else with any other options in life, you might choose to avoid catching crimes from Donald Trump just by being in his general presence, right? So Getting a dime like I, dropped on you. Exactly. Yes. You don't want that. But let's just, I just want to take advantage of having you, once again, a noted legal expert here on a podcast devoid of legal experts on most days. I think you're selling Love It Short. Fair, fair. Well, he's on vacation, so he, and he's never listened to the Thursday pod, so he'll have no idea um, I said this. But 
Do you what do you think is going to happen next here? Like, what should we be looking for as this case proceeds or this investigation proceeds? I guess is the right way to say it. You know, I, I didn't answer your question about um, what's the DOJ doing. I, I think that that question leads inexorably to this question. Like, I, I don't know what the strategy is for the DOJ. Is it simply to recover the documents or rather to gather evidence that makes it more likely than not that a criminal prosecution could be mounted? I think this is where the realm of politics and the realm of law sort of get inverted. I, I think that all the fact that all of this is coming out right now, that there's 700 pages of documents, many of them are incredibly sensitive. Like someone said, these are like the most important secrets that the nation holds. Like, I think it's going to be really hard for the Department of Justice to simply say, we got everything, right? We did a damage assessment. It's all good. Let's move on. I, I think it's going to be really hard for people to just move on without any sense of accountability. At a minimum, I think there's definitely going to be legislation about how presidential records are kept and how they're retained um, more than what we have now. And you know, the Presidential Records Act that we have now is a vestige of the aftermath of Watergate. I think we're going to get more legislation around these kinds of questions coming out of this. But I think there are going to be a lot of people who rightly will demand accountability. Like the idea that you had this back and forth with the National Archives, the FBI is involved. We had to have surveillance video to figure out who's coming in and out of this place where you're keeping these documents. I think a lot of people are going to say, like, that can't be how we do national security. That can't be what a former president, someone who has a fiduciary obligation to the nation and the national security, that can't be how he conducts himself. And I think people are going to want accountability, and that may very well uh, be in the form of criminal prosecution. Whether the DOJ takes that step, I think, is another question, but I think there are going to be people demanding it. Putting us, like, obviously, I can't comment with any uh, substance on how they would make such a case, or whatever it is, but just from, a pers- from like the optics perspective of this, how do you not proceed in a prosecution of a former president who knowingly and willfully took documents and then uh, you know allegedly tried to hide them uh after signing legally um enforceable documents and saying that they did not have those in a world in which the Department of Justice has prosecuted reality winner for for something much smaller has aggressively and I think in many cases inappropriately gone after people who have leaked classified information to reporters, betrayed. like obviously we have a two-tiered or multi-tiered system of justice in this country where politically connected people do not pay the same price that those who are not politically connected do. But this is such an obvious, painful case that not pursuing this would seem like a very, very hard thing to explain if it is as, at least appears to the non-lawyers on this podcast, as open and shut as it seems, Right. So I definitely think that if there is a decision to not go forward with a prosecution, like it it will, I think, lay bare the fact that, you know, there are various tiers of justice here that operate in different ways for different people, depending on their level of political connectedness. I think one other thing that we can't overlook here is just sort of DOJ norms around launching a prosecution, um, and these are prudential norms, launching a prosecution close to an impending election. If you count 
the days between when the surge of Mar-a-Lago took place and when the midterm elections are supposed to happen. I think it's about 90 or 91 days. And typically, uh, the DOJ norms that you don't do a prosecution close to an election and, and close is usually between two or three, like two or three months um, out from an election. So, you know, I wonder just given the timing, whether that wasn't purposeful. Like, you know, they waited until the like the, the outer reach of that in order to do the search and conduct the search. And it may mean that we don't hear anything else about what comes out of the search and where DOJ is on its next steps until after the midterm elections. And that might be shaped by whether at that point in time we know if former President Trump is now current candidate Trump. And that may also shape the decision about how to go forward in terms of accountability. So I think there are a lot of prudential concerns here. Um, This is not to be an apologist for the DOJ, but just sort of identify some of the things I think they're likely thinking about. Um, But again, you're exactly right. A lot of people have gone to jail for a lot less than this. It would be really, I understand why the Department of Justice may not, we're getting to the point where it would be very weird to announce some next step here this close to an election. But what would be really, I think, terrible if Donald Trump's announcement of his candidacy for president, something he already has said, he's already basically announced. I mean, some, you know, not that we're prosecuting a lot of FEC violations, but he's in a real legal gray area about. Um, his next candidacy, given what he said publicly. But if you if you if the world view is that you can't be indicted for criminal defense while president because of the OLC opinion from many years ago, but you also can't be indicted for a criminal offense committed while you weren't president because you are running for president, we're going to end up with a lot more people running for president in this country <laughs> if that is the case. Uh, well, I mean, I, half I think- the Republican Party is going to announce just to avoid prosecution for various insurrection related crimes. Well, I think it just sort of shows that these norms were created and conceived of at a time when you just couldn't imagine a president of the United States or someone running for president, like doing anything that could be considered crime adjacent or or criming in full. I mean, like, you know, presidents don't do crimes. And, you know, maybe that's entirely out the window. And we're just like, you know, some sweet summer child who is reflecting on a bygone day when, you know, you didn't crime while president. Yeah, or while running for governor. I mean, any, yeah, we I mean, to, yeah. I mean just like, all across the board. You know, I mean, we even had in the last election, in the 2018 election cycle, two sitting, two members, Republican members yeah. of Congress who were under active indictment, who ran yeah. and won their election. Yeah. Now they did, re- they did retire after uh, being convicted, but uh, were able to win election under indictment. So we're definitely in a, uh, in a new era here. Okay. Finally, let's end on a little bit of good news here. A lot of pundits declared in the immediate aftermath of the thing we are not calling a raid that this would fire up the Republican base and be a political boon for the Republican Party. But on Tuesday night in New York, Democrat Pat Ryan easily won a special election against a quality opponent in a district that Biden won by two and a half points. So, Melissa, do you think it's possible the leader of the Republican Party stealing nuclear secrets may not be the political win that the pundits thought? I mean, I think it's possible that some people may have been like, hmm, sounds shady, right? This is not going to be the boom. Not everyone buys the grievance victimization narrative. Like like Joe Biden didn't make you do this. Um, And I also think it's not simply that the prospect of 
retaining 700 pages worth of classified information is not appealing to the electorate. I, I mean, I think there are just a lot of aspects of the Republican platform right now that are unappealing to broad swaths of the public, right? So the stance on reproductive freedom, for example, the effort to limit the opportunity of individuals to participate in the electoral process, probably not a big winner. So I I think there's just a lot of places where people are just like, you know what, I'm not down for that. may also be the case that, you know, the Ryan race uh, took place in a jurisdiction that has a very, like, active democratic electorate um, or portion of the electorate, and they were especially turned out for the primaries. I mean, we had a lot going on in New York at that time. Um, A lot of things could have been at play, but but I do think this idea that there is some sector of the public that just isn't buying into what the Republican Party is selling right now is a real thing. And, And I think we saw it in Kansas, and I think, you know, we saw it last Tuesday, and maybe we'll see it going forward. Yeah, I don't think Pat Ryan won because of this new criminal investigation of Trump. But it what it did not do, based on this one specific race, is change the trajectory yeah. that Democrats have been on for the last few months. No, this I, is I think that's four, right. This is the fourth special election in row where Democrats have outperformed their 2020 numbers. And yeah. so the idea that this was going to put a stop to the momentum that has been growing starting with the Dobbs decision and then proceeding through this uh, recent bit of success for Democrats and lower gas prices, et cetera, is that this is not, you know, it is probably at best for the Republicans neutral and at worst, uh, you know, slightly detrimental, but it is not a sleeper issue. It seems like the people, you know, if it was going to be this red wave is going to fire everyone up, you would have seen some indications of that here and that Mm -hmm. did not happen. So it appears that, at least as of today in American politics, getting your home visited to by the FBI is not yet a win for your party. So we can all sleep well knowing that. Not a win. I I like how you said that, visiting by the FBI. I am working really hard to get raid out of my vocabulary because, yes, as you pointed out, it was court approved. It was peaceful. They even wore cargo shorts. I'm not sure why that was mandatory, but uh, they were. It's Florida. It a, You're like you have to wear cargo shorts and a short sleeve shirt everywhere. I mean, do, do you need? I mean, did they need additional? I guess they needed additional pockets because there were 700 documents to find. Yeah. That yeah, you that's roll them up, you stick them in your your side pocket to get it. Yes, out. This, yeah. that's probably how Trump got yeah. them out of the White House. To be honest mm-hmm. with you. All right, Melissa Murray, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, for filling in for John, and giving us actual knowledge on legal issues. Thanks for having me. When we come back, White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. In an executive order yesterday, President Biden made history by canceling $10,000 in student loan debt for all Americans making less than $125,000 a year and $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. Here to talk about this big news is the White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre. Corrine, welcome to Pod Save America. Hey, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. I have been wanting to be on the show for a long time, and I know I, I know it's not easy to get on, so I appreciate <laughs> you allowing allowing little old me on. So thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. You are the White, well, you're the White House Press Secretary. <laughs> you have an open invite <laughs> to our podcast. I appreciate it. Tell us about this announcement, what it means who's impacted and how do people go get uh, sign up for this debt relief? How, where, where do they go to, to, okay. to get the help? So, and you, thank you for laying it out pretty, pretty well for me. So I'll just kind of piggyback mm. on what you just said, Dan. Yes. Um, this is a historic, historic uh, announcement. This has not been done by any other president uh, before, which is doing this, uh, the work and, and, and keeping his campaign promise of doing that $10,000 um, uh, uh, debt relief. And he just didn't stop there. It, it, it is up to 20,000. Uh, and, and the president wanted to make sure that he did this in a fiscally responsible way, uh, in a balanced way. Uh, and that's what you saw yesterday, because it's not just, it's not just the, the 10,000, uh, for, for people who are making less under 125,000. And then if you add the Pell grant, uh, borrowers, uh, that will, um, that will add for them up to 20,000. If you think about Pell grant, uh, borrows, I was, a Pell Grant recipient when I was going through undergrad. And it is for households, just think about this, for households, for folks who don't know, some folks uh, may have gone through the same thing and know this personally. If you're a household making $60,000, well, it, it's average out, it, it's mostly uh, Pell Grant recipients or, or folks who are nearly uh, making uh, $60,000 per household. And half of the Pell Grant borrowers are th at $30,000 uh, per household. That's a big deal because this is a targeted, targeted effort uh, for folks who really need that extra breathing room, as you hear the president say often. So that's that piece. And then there's two more other pieces I want to talk about really quickly, and I'll give it back to you, Dan, um, is, is the other piece is that uh, the pause that we have had uh, since the previous administration, and it's been extended under this administration a couple of times, is going to be lifted at December 31st. So we wanted to do this about the same time. Uh, so uh, to give people, continue to give people a little bit of breathing room. And the third thing is there is a reform component 
to this, people have been asking us, well, what happens to the folks, the, the folks who are going to come, who are in high school or who are, who are going to be future borrowers? This, the, doing this reform piece, we got to understand this, this student loan piece, it is, it is um, the system is just not working. It is a broken system. So we wanted to make sure that for future borrowers and current borrowers, uh, we are taking that 10%, that 5% cap, uh, I'm sorry, that 10% cap, and we're making, we're bringing it, um, we're bringing it down to 5%. So you are going to, if you're a construction worker uh, and you pay, I don't know, 200 bucks a month uh, for your, uh, for your student loan, it will now be a hundred bucks a month. So that is incredibly important as well uh, to make sure that we're giving uh, relief and we're thinking about, the president wanted to think about future borrowers as well. So this is exciting. This is historic. We are proud of what we have been able to do. And it's just going to help so many, so many uh, Americans. Americans and families. If you're a person who qualifies for this debt relief, either under student loans or Pell Grants, is there a place you go to sign up? Um, and if those applications aren't online yet, uh, any sense of when they will be? So as you know, you've been, you've been, you've sat in this, <laughs> in this building before. Yes. And so this was a directive uh, that was done by the Department of Education. This is an administrative action, as you know. Um, so uh, the Department of Education is going to run this process. There is a website that is set up. What I tell people to go is to whitehouse.gov. There's a separate white website, but the whitehouse.gov is pretty simple too. There's a banner right on, right at the top of uh, the, the website, you click on that banner, it takes you to the actual website, directs you to the website uh, that talks about the debt relief uh, program that we just announced yesterday. And then you can sign up to get email updates uh, so that um, you know exactly what you need to do Department of Education is going to do all that work. They are working through that process. Mm -hmm. They will have an application for people uh, to sign up to uh, sign up for. There's about eight million people that we that um, that we the administration uh, has automatic information on, right? That we just have information, so that that will automatically uh, they'll see that relief uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but then others have to kind of check and make sure and go through the process, and that's going to happen through the Department of Education. Now. Predictably, this announcement calls Republicans to flip their lid. They're screaming about fiscal responsibility and helping certain people, not helping others. What is your guys' response to the <laughs> overall Republican critique that we, everyone listening to this knows is complete and total bullshit, yeah. but <laughs> I want to hear it from, from the White House as to uh, like, what is your response to the way, what the Republicans have been sort of screaming about it? In response it is, to this plan. Dad, it is so <laughs> ironic. It is incredibly yes. ironic. Um, and I say this because how irresponsible were they back in 2017 when they gave a tax cut to the wealthy, $2 trillion, $2 trillion, didn't have a way to pay for it. And uh, it was for the wealthy. And the way that worked out is 85% of that uh, tax cut went to uh, went to uh, uh, folks, uh, Americans who are making more than $75,000 a year. And what we are talking about with what the president announced yesterday is that uh, 90% of, of the benefits is going to go to people who are making less than 75,000. So you see that the reverse of what uh, we are trying to do, we, are, we care about the little guy, 
Uh, we care about the little the, the 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 people who have been left behind, who have been crushed and crippled by uh, the economy. The last two years, we know that the president has done so much work to turn the economy back on. But it is such. It, I mean, it is. We are happy to have that conversation. We are happy to have that uh, discussion because, again, when we were talking about those PPP loans back during the beginning of uh, the pandemic that was going to small businesses. No one said anything when we were forgiving loans uh, because of the PPP loans. No one, no one on that side said anything about it. Now that we're trying to help target, you know, doing this in a targeted way, helping people that really need the help. Oh, now we hear, now we hear this is a problem. In general, we can't take uh, critiques seriously from people who fought like hell to keep huge corporations paying zero dollars in taxes, like they're not really credible messengers on this. But there are some critiques that I think I would love to get your take on because they're they're you know less on their face ridiculous than the Republican ones. One is that this is going to increase college tuition. It doesn't just college affordability. Like this is obviously one piece of a larger college affordability plan that the president campaigned on and has worked on, uh, you know, going back to uh, when I worked in that building with him. Could you just talk about what else the president wants to do to address yeah. the larger problem of college affordability? And and that is something that uh, Secretary Cardonas, who is, uh, as you know, the secretary for the Department of Education, is taking very seriously and keeping a close eye on that. It is has said he's going to crack down uh, on uh, on those efforts if we if we see those uh, happening, which we people you know clearly we're expecting that to happen. Uh, that is not surprising that that would happen, and so he has uh, put forth uh, some uh, some real programs to keep an eye on that and to take action if that if it warrants or when it warrants. Uh, the other pieces, the other things that this president has done, which has been historic, and you're right, it's not just been this past 19 months has been with uh, the Obama-Biden administration, you know, that is something that we all cared about, uh, he cared about with the with President Obama, uh, you know, and and did the work there uh, in, in a way that was effective for people uh, who needed the help. Uh, but the thing that, um, the thing that I wanted to just also mention is the president has, um, also, thirty-two billion dollars. Uh, he's been able uh, to do uh, to re- uh, to take away uh, loan debt for about one six one point six million Americans. That's something that he was able to do very early on. That's thirty-two billion dollars uh, uh, for one point six uh, million Americans. That's incredibly important when you think about HBCUs, the historically uh, black college and universities. We're talking about six billion dollars uh, because of the American Rescue Plan, but which, by the way only democrats voted for and helped turn the economy back on during one of the one of the hardest toughest times for americans because of this once in a generation pandemic and so the hbcu investment is at 6 billion dollars which is also historic uh historic amount uh to invest so we have done extra extra work um and and taking extra steps uh to make sure that uh people who have been feeling the crunch with intuition uh increases or high costs uh, can get a little bit also a little bit more breathing room from the american rescue plan which i just mentioned there's about 40 billion dollars that was put in there so college and universities could help uh people young people who were really at need uh, to make sure that their costs were were lowered as well. Again, only Democrats, only Democrats voted for the American Rescue Plan. That seems to be a real theme these days, and a lot with a lot of <laughs> a lot of th- a lot of things that help working people. The you know the president has said that fighting inflation is his top priority. He just signed the Inflation Reduction Act. 
it's not just Republicans. There are some economists, including Democratic economists, who've argued that this decision would impact when it could potentially increase inflation. What are the White House economists and economic advisors saying about why that's not the case? Yeah, so we don't think that's the case. And we've heard from experts as well, including Wall Street uh, experts who have said it will have uh, it will not have a meaningful impact on inflation. Look, one of the things that we have talked about, and I, I, I believe I said this at the beginning, and if I if I if I did, I apologize for repeating myself, is that we have, uh, you know, this president has been very, very keyed in and tuned in on the, the deficit reduction, right? The first, and this is part of deficit direct deduct, deduction is in, in, indeed part of fighting inflation. They go hand in hand in, in many ways. When you want to fight inflation, one of the things they can do is reduce the debt. And in the first year we saw in this administration, $380 billion of deficit reduction by the end of this uh, fiscal cycle, which ends in October, uh, we'll see $1.7 trillion uh, uh, in, in deficit uh, deduction. And that is because of the work that this administration has done uh, to make sure that that happened. And so you have seen uh, how how seriously we take this. We want to make sure when we put out this plan, we wanted to make sure that it was fiscally balanced uh, and smart, uh, but also was done in a targeted way to truly, truly help uh, Americans. There have also been some critiques here, including from some Democrats, that this obviously affects uh, only people who went to college, not the millions and millions of Americans who did not go to college. Maybe I think once again, that is taking this uh, executive order out of out of the larger context of the Biden economic plan. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that this administration wants to do to help working middle class people that, oh, I, oh, I don't know, maybe Republicans may be blocking in the Senate. <laughs> well, there is one bill that just got signed by this president that was certainly blocked by by Republicans, uh, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. And here's the thing about this, Dan. If Republicans truly cared about fighting inflation, they would have voted or supported the only inflation bill that was in front of them a few weeks ago, which is this Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to do wonders. It fights special interests, right? We've been fighting, Democrats have been fighting special interests, wealthy, wealthy special interests like pharma, for example, for decades. And what the Inflation Reduction Act is going to do and now that it is law, uh, it's going to lower cost of pharmaceutical dr drug costs for our seniors. Just think about it. Our seniors, I mean, I know people, I have friends uh, who pay, who have to help. And, and actually the president did, did this with, when his mom was getting older is they, she had to pay thousands of dollars a month a month on prescription drugs. And what this will do, uh, and this is so many seniors that this affect, this will cap the year uh, payment to 2000. But Republicans voted against that. They voted against lowering prescription drugs for our seniors uh, because they were in the pockets of big pharma, because they were in the pockets of the special interest. Big pharma spent hundreds, uh, tens, I should say, tens of millions of dollars to make sure that this bill didn't go through. And that's what they've been doing for decades. And let's not forget the climate stuff in there. Historical investment's going to really uh, make a big, big dent in what we're trying to do uh, to deal with a climate crisis or cl climate change. This has obviously been a period of great progress, uh, a season of substance, I think, as Ron Klain has called it, uh, for the <laughs> Democrats in this administration uh, between passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, 
veterans benefits, um, the CHIPS Act, et cetera. Now we There's have so many, so many, so many, so many. I can't, I can't even <laughs> list them. The Congress is working somehow. But, <laughs> somehow. Um, what do you? What are you guys going to turn your attention to now? As you know, yeah. the summer comes to an end. Fall happens. We have this looming midterm. Or some things that our listeners should be expecting to see from this White House: more yeah. executive actions, more attempts at legislation. No, it's all good questions. Look, the president is going to continue to do the work for the American people. There are things uh, that, for example, the bill, uh, the, his BBB, the Build Back Better agenda, that's where the uh, Inflation Reduction Act actually comes from. That is part of that. When you think about elder care, when you think about child care, all things that he's still very much committed to that we know is going to give some relief to families, to single moms, uh, to parents out there who really need that help, uh, especially in taking care or someone taking care of an elder parent. Those are real. Uh, issues that, that uh, Americans have to deal with. So that's still important to him. He's going to continue to work on these issues. Uh, and in the next uh, several weeks, the next several days, you're going to see the, 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 the president and Democrats out there. To your point, we have successes. We have uh, the receipts, as the young people say, because I'm getting really old now, but the receipts to show the American people that, hey, look, this is what we have done. This is what we're doing. And we're going to continue to do that work, but we want to explain to you what the American Rescue Plan did, why it was able to put shots in arms and get the, the economy going again, why it was able to save small businesses, why it was able to open up schools again. Uh, we want to talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law. Let's for, not forget that is an historical investment, and it was bipartisan, which people said it couldn't happen, for our roads, for our bridges, for our tunnels. We're going to go out and talk about that and all of the amazing thing, the CHIPS acts with the manufacturing and you know, strengthening our supply chain, making sure we're strengthening our national security, the benefits, right? The benefits for veterans, expanding ve uh, benefits for vet veterans, which really hasn't been done in so long, making sure we're taking care of our folks who put their lives on their line uh, for us, for our nation. Uh, think about, again, the, in, uh, the in, um, Inflation Reduction Act, all of those things. And let's not forget the bipartisan um, uh, gun reform that hadn't been done in decades, in decades. And you were here, Dan. You were here. How you were here when it was so hard. All of the things, the horrible mass shootings that we saw during the last administration, and we couldn't get anything done. And how hard uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden at the time worked so hard to make sure that we were protecting communities. Now we're taking a step. We've taken a step uh, to to get to a better place where where you know, going to school doesn't have to be so scary. Going to a grocery store doesn't have to be so scary. There's still work to be done, but at least we're taking a step in the right direction. Okay. Last question for you. I'm not even sure if you can answer this. Oh boy. But I have read that President Biden has seen the dark branded memes. He's been briefed <laughs> on them. Having worked with President Biden before, I'm really trying to imagine that conversation. Is there anything you can tell me about how we learned about this? his reaction to it, how you guys explained it to him. It's so funny. I was not there if when that happened. If that happened, I actually don't know. My guess is maybe his grandkids may have, have probably brought it up to him. I don't know. That's just my my guess. Uh, uh, but it's so it's wild. I saw something. Somebody said it's like going viral. People are sending me yes. sending me uh, uh, <laughs> dark branded <laughs> things all the time. Uh, but it is uh, it is something to behold. Wow. I don't yeah. know what to say about it. It's yeah, his, the grandkids is a great guess. That would be that's my guess. House, and I was tasked with trying to 
explain dark Brandon to Joe Biden, I would definitely send the grandkids in. Yeah. They're younger, they're hipper. He definitely right. listens to them. So yes. that makes a lot they're of sense. They're his grandkids. He would he yes. loves them. Of course he would you're to your point. Of course he would listen to them. I I that's my that's my guess. I don't know. That that <laughs> that, that, that sounds credible to me. Kareen, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'd love to have you back again soon. Oh, this was so much fun. Dan, thank you for the opportunity to for, thank you. Uh, to give me uh, an opportunity to talk about all the great things that we're doing here. All right. Yeah, bye, well, guys. Good, good luck out there. Bye. Bye. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Joining us now is the Secretary of State from Arizona. She's also running to become Arizona's next governor, Katie Hobbs. Welcome to the pod. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You were serving as Secretary of State during the 2020 election when Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump by just 10,000 votes. Arizona became ground zero in the big lie. It is a where the center of the battle for democracy is. How did your experience as Secretary of State in that election impact your decision to run for governor in 2022? Uh, it was absolutely foundational in my decision to run on, on, in, on two fronts. First of all, we are facing unprecedented attacks on our democracy from every angle. Um, and it's all fueled by the former president's big lie, the fact that he is running all of these election denier or backing all these election deniers running uh, in offices up and down the ballot uh, here in Arizona. Um, his entire slate of, of, of candidates swept the Republican primaries, uh, including my opponent, Carrie Lake, who has made election denial the center of her campaign. Um, and on the other side of that, Arizonans want to move on from the 2020 election. We're facing some serious challenges. Uh, and nobody, uh, I'm the only one offering solutions for how we can tackle those challenges and talking about how we can bring people together to solve these problems and continue to move our state forward uh, instead of being stuck in the, uh, an election that happened two years ago. After a number of election officials, yourself included in Arizona and around the country, stood up against the big lie and the people trying to throw out people's votes, there were, you know, we heard about this during the January 6th hearing. There were threats against uh, election workers. I know you continue to get these threats. I understand that you actually got a very serious threat earlier this month. Your team has shared that audio with us. Let's take a listen and we'll talk about it afterwards. This message is for traitor Katie Hobbs. You've drug your feet. You've done nothing to protect our election for 2020. 
you're committing election fraud, you're starting to do it again from day one. You're the enemy of the United States. You're a traitor to this country. And you better put your your fucking affairs in order because your days are extremely numbered. America's coming for you, and you will pay with your life, you communist fucking traitor bitch. And that is obviously a very disturbing and scary message. I can only imagine what it was like to receive that. What's your response to it, and what do you say to the people who are helping fuel, including your opponent, or helping fuel these conspiracy theories and these threats against people who are simply trying to do their job to protect democracy? I mean, we are in very dangerous times right now. As you mentioned, um, it is elected officials and other political leaders who are fueling these kinds of threats of violence and who continue to feed the big lie. And so when everyday people who are being misled by these lies uh, don't see action being taken because there's nothing to take action for. There's there's no evidence of fraud. Um, we conducted the safest and most secure election in our state's history. Uh, and, you know, my opponent continues to call for me to be arrested. And when that doesn't happen, um, where's the point where people decide to take things into their own hands? I mean, you heard his words saying that that I'm a traitor and that America's coming for me. Um, and and our 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 so-called leaders are are egging this on and um, refusing to see how dangerous or ignoring how dangerous their behavior is and their rhetoric is. Your opponent, Kari Lake, is, in my opinion, perhaps the most dangerous candidate running for office in the country right now. Um, she has you know, fueled the threats like the one we just heard. She is spreading lies, but she is also someone who has a is a former news anchor who has a long-term relationship with the voters in that state. What is your strategy for centering the campaign on her extremism and informing the voters of Arizona why she is would be such a dangerous choice to be governor? Well, you're exactly right that she is incredibly dangerous. And it's not just because of her rhetoric and her focus on these election conspiracies, but it's the actual thing she said she would do as governor and her extreme positions on critical issues like abortion. She fully supports criminalizing abortion uh, with no exceptions for rape or incest or even the life of the mother. Uh, her, her proposals would kill women. Uh, and that is not being hyperbolic. She's suggested that er everyday Arizonans should be able to own rocket launchers, uh, which are weapons of war uh, that are designed to cause extreme destruction. Uh, and when given the chance to, to back down from these positions, she's doubled down on them. And so she's clearly dangerous. And so our focus is making sure that Arizonans know that, but also that I'm the the sanity in this equation that that this election is not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about sanity versus chaos and that um, that we have real issues to tackle. And uh, I have a record of working across the aisle to tackle problems. And that's the kind of leadership I'll bring to the governor's office to continue to move our state forward. I would like to just put a just follow ask one follow up question that she supports allowing Arizonans to have rocket launchers. Is it did I hear that correctly? Yes, yes. And I you're and and she said this at some point during the primary when she was trying to bolster her Second Amendment cred. And um, 
you know, said this, like trying to say the most extreme thing that's so extreme, you can't even believe it. But um, when fact checking an ad that we put out saying this, um, she said, oh, yeah, I support all weapons and didn't back down. Okay, so now allowing 18 year olds to buy assault weapons is the is the rhino position of the Republican Party. A true Republican supports rocket launchers or any other weapon. That's that's great. That is good to hear. Um, you know, obviously, you're you're going to spend a lot of time in your campaign communicating with Arizonans about the stakes in this election, what her policies would mean for them. But for our listeners who are not in Arizona, who may want to help your campaign, can you just help explain what dangers we face in the 2024 election if we go into a close race in Arizona where Kari Lake is the governor, Mark Fincham, a member of the Oath Keepers, is a, the Secretary of State, and what that looks like and why democracy hinges in some ways on your race. Yes, absolutely. Um, and thank you for asking that question. So first of all, we are going to win this race. Uh, we've gotten support from across the country because people know how important Arizona is, and we will continue to accept support uh, at katiehabs.org. So thank you so much for that. Uh, but there is so much at stake and you see um, the former president focusing on swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, uh, because they're key to clinching the um, presidency in 2024. And he wants folks like Carrie Lake to be in positions over certifying elections so that uh, they can overturn the will of the voters, break the rules if, you know, if they don't like the outcome. That's what we're facing. We're facing a choice between um, the, it's the future of free and fair elections in our country that are on the ballot uh, in 2022. You know, the, obviously Arizona was an incredibly close state in 2020. It's a state that Republicans had won many years in advance. What role is Donald Trump's support of your opponent and the rest of the Republican ticket they're playing? How are Arizonans reacting to that? Is that, a, is that helpful to them? Is it hurtful to them? Is it something you're talking about? Well, I think Carrie Lake's electorate that that gave her the nomination uh, for the Republican Party is not representative of the majority of our state. Uh, that being said, this is still going to be an incredibly close race. Uh, a Democrat doesn't win in Arizona by a landslide. Um, and but from what I've talked to folks about, they are ready to move on from the 2020 election. They are tired of Arizona being uh, a laughingstock, being the butt of late night comedy television jokes. Um, and, uh, and having been ground zero, as you said, for the, the, the fallout from the 2020 election. Uh, and so, so they're tired of it. They want to move on. And I think they really get what's at stake in this election. Um, and, and, and so Donald Trump's involvement here and in other states is really driving home that, that extreme rhetoric, that election denial, um, that most people know is not real. Uh, and um, and alienating them from from everyday voters. Uh, Carrie Lake certainly is continuing to feel that rhetoric um, before the primary. She started saying there were there were huge amounts of fraud um, that she had evidence of if she lost the race. Uh, clearly, she didn't. But we know she's coming back with that after the general. She's going to bring the cyber ninjas back. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the you know this is one of the most unique midterm electoral environments we've ever had. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, the party in power, Democrats, uh, would suffer in this election, but a lot has changed in recent months. 
you know, what, how are you focusing your message or communications with voters where, you know, obviously, as we mentioned, that you're running against a big lie candidate, Arizona's uh, at the center of the battle for democracy. It is abortion is also a bit top of mind for a lot of voters. Your opponent's extreme record on abortion, but we're also existing in an environment with record high inflation, a very confusing economy. How are you? What is the story you're telling voters? How do you work through all those issues to have a coherent narrative about why you and why not your opponent? Um, so yeah, and that's a question we get a lot, and I think um, it's really clear this is a race. Uh, for Arizona, it's a race between myself and Carrie Lake, not you know the White House and Republicans. Um, certainly, those things are playing out. Uh, Arizonans are concerned about affordability. It's one of the top issues I hear from people uh, that's being directly impacted by inflation. We put out a plan to help address that and put money back in uh, the pockets of working families without raising taxes and give them some immediate relief from these economic um, problems we're seeing. Uh, uh, in Arizona, inflation is being largely driven by the housing market. We're going to focus on how we bring those costs down so that Arizonans can afford rents or 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 new home purchases. Um, so that's we're focusing on these real issues and how we address them, uh, which my opponent has no plans to do, no serious plans to do. Uh, Arizonans are absolutely concerned about continued access to safe and legal abortion, which we don't have in the state right now. There's no abortion providers uh, providing services right now. That's not only compromising uh, necessary health care for, for people seeking abortions, but um, routine pregnancy care. Uh, I had a miscarriage. Uh, my doctor performed a DNC. It was the best option for my health. Um, these are common in miscarriages and, and women's health care is being compromised because of these policies. And um, there, it's not extreme to say that what my opponent is proposing, a full criminalization of abortion, uh, is going to put women's lives at risk. Um, we need to invest in public education. My opponent wants to put cameras in every public school classroom to monitor what teachers are doing, uh, which would open the doors for predators uh, for all of our, to, uh, to spy on all of our children. Um, and we have serious issues when it comes to water and our leaders have kicked the can down the road for too long. We need to tackle that head on. Um, and my opponent has proposed piping water to Arizona from the Mississippi River, which is uh, not a feasible alternative all, at all, but there are some real things we can do um, that, would, that would have an impact and address the crisis immediately um, and that's that those are the things I'm talking to folks about uh, and um, and how we can, you know, again, move our state forward versus offering a lot of extreme rhetoric uh, and um, not addressing the real issues that we're facing. So to put a button on this, your opponent is pro big lie, pro election theft, anti access to abortion, pro rocket launcher and has no serious plan for inflation or water. Is that correct? That sums it up, yeah. Good, good. So let's just, just one more time for the folks listening. If they want to support Katie Hobbs, protect democracy, make sure Donald Trump's favorite candidate does not become governor of a critical battleground state, where do they go to help your campaign? Uh, katiehobbs.org is the website. You can donate 
You can sign up to volunteer. We can absolutely use out-of-state volunteers for phone banking. Um, so please help us. We can win this race. Uh, I'm ahead in the polls. The most recent poll has me leading by three points. Um, I've never lost an election. I'm the first Democrat to win Secretary of State in 24 years here. Um, I've got a track record to protect, and uh, the stakes are too high to uh, to to lose now. So we're in this to win it, and your your help will absolutely help get us there. Secretary Hobbs, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck on the campaign trail. Thank you so much for having me. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.